If you will, take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere close by. And 1 Corinthians 15 verses 54 to 57 are on page 962 of that Bible. 962. You'll want to keep that open as I'll be referencing things that are said in that text as we go along. Uh, 1 Corinthians, we're actually working our way through 1 Corinthians, but skipping ahead just for this week. Uh, But the whole letter is written by the Apostle Paul, and he addresses a number of big problems in this first century church, and chapter 15 is no different. He actually addresses a problem that goes right to the heart of the Christian faith. You see, there were some folks in Corinth who, when they put their earpods in, they were listening to podcasts about Greek philosophy. And in Greek, I know you probably do as well, but they were listening to Greek philosophy, which teaches that at the point of death, the soul leaves the body, but that's it forever. And. They would use the words of resurrection, but they didn't quite believe the content. Now, that in itself is an important subject that we could get off on because there are many people who would use the words of the Christian faith, but not really believe the content of it. And that's what's happening in the city of Corinth. So Paul faces this head on, and he says earlier in the chapter that if if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then the whole Christian faith as you know it falls apart. In fact, he says the body, the risen, resurrected, glorified body of the Lord Jesus was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses including Paul himself. And so he assures them in verse 20 of that chapter, he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And the implication that he draws is that since Jesus was raised from the dead, so will those who believe in him, though not immediately, not at the point of death. The Christian soul, the Bible teaches that that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The soul does go to be with the Lord while the body is buried. But in the end, when the last trumpet sounds, bodies will, our bodies will be raised, soul and body reunited, our bodies will be glorified, transformed, changed. And that brings us to these words beginning in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you will speak to us through it. We pray that you will open our ears, that we might hear it clearly, open our minds, that we might understand it. 
Open our hearts that we might receive it and love it and be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the summer of 2008, I started work as a hospice chaplain north of here about an hour and a half. Uh, In my position, I was to be both chaplain and bereavement care coordinator. And as a bereavement care coordinator, I would call widows, widowers, those who had lost children, those who had lost parents at regular intervals, at one month, three months, six months, and a year after they had lost whoever it is. And one of the first phone calls that I made was to a woman named Mary. Mary had lost her husband. In fact, it was the second husband that she had lost. She told me that her first husband died suddenly and unexpectedly of a heart attack. No known heart problems until he died. Her second husband, who had been under our care, died slowly, little by little, over months, to cancer. And as we were talking, I, I asked if I might ask her a question. And she said, sure. And I said, which one of those losses do you think was harder The one that surprised you or the one that you saw coming? And she said, neither. Death is death. Loss is loss. Death stings. Death hurts. Death brings grief and loss and heartache, and all of that is natural, but what people long for in that moment is actually not natural. What we long for is hope. That's what we want. And the verses that we read may, at times, give us hope with those that, in the light of those that we have lost, but they were written to give us hope as we consider our own mortality. You see, whether death surprises you or you contract a disease and you see it coming from afar day by day, getting closer and closer, according to these words, you can have hope. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, He conquered the grave. He conquered death. And that's where we find hope. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's good when you're reading the Bible to ask questions of the Bible, even when it asks questions. And my question is, how do these questions bring hope? Well, first, they bring hope because they are rhetorical. The questions are rhetorical. They have to be if they're going to give hope. Can you imagine if you ask these really? Like if you just ask somebody, 
so where do you think, do you, you know, where is death's victory really? Where, where is death's sting really? I mean, like, seriously, I want to know. If you ask that naturally, these questions sound ridiculous because death seems to win all the time. When you look around and I look around, doesn't it seem true that death seems to win? As, as, as a husband buries a wife of only a few years, as a five-year-old boy stands by his mother's grave, death seems to win. As a mother stands by her five-year-old boy's grave, Death seems to win. After the painful news of yet another school shooting, death seems to win. In abortion clinics, 23 times a day in 2021 in the state of Indiana, death seems to win. Just earlier this week, there was a murder-suicide up in Lawrence on the east side. Death seems to win. To win. I read an article last week in Sunday's paper. I don't ever read the paper, but I read it last week, this last week. And to the parents of Terry Badger II, this 13-year-old boy in Covington who took his own life on March 6th, death seems to win. To the parents of Yasmin Rodriguez, an eighth grader at Perry Meridian Middle School who two weeks ago went to a party and never came home because she was killed. Death seems to win. And the examples are endless, aren't they? We could just go on and on and on. As those who fill cancer wards, empty them, not to go home forever, but to go to the grave. Death seems to win. In the Bible, Job wrestles with the reality and hardness of death. Listen to his words. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And then he draws an analogy with nature. He says, for there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last. And where is he? Look, if Paul's questions here in 1 Corinthians uh, 15 are taken naturally as real questions, they sound ridiculous. But they're not real questions. They're rhetorical questions. He's not asking these questions to get answers, you see. He's asking these questions to make a point. He's not wondering whether death wins. He's actually saying death loses. He's not wondering whether death stings. 
he's actually saying the sting of death has been removed. These questions are trash talk. They are taunts. Now, very interestingly, taunting made the news this last week, didn't it? The players from Iowa and LSU taunting each other during this game, doing this hand gesture known as the Cena, you know, where you can't see me, you can't keep up. And then, one, and then the LSU player following the other around, pointing to the ring finger. And I'm really unclear on what all the hubbub is actually about because this has been happening ever since people have been competing with one another. If that is wrong, I've got a lot of apologies to make for my, to my little brother. Because <laughs> I beat the daylights out of that kid on the basketball court. <laughs> but do you know what's happening here? Paul is walking around the court of the world and he's pointing to his ring finger. He is taunting death. He's saying, where's your victory? Where's your sting? But how can he possibly ask that? Death seems to win. Death seems to sting everything that it touches. I mean, has Paul lost his mind? Is Paul on some religious flight of fantasy pretending that everything's okay while clearly it is not? Is this faith of his blinding him to reality? How can, this, how can the questions be rhetorical? Well, the questions are rhetorical because, secondly, the questions point back to the resurrection of Jesus. The questions point back to Jesus' resurrection. You see, when Paul asks these questions, he's not saying that he's found a way to stop death. Nobody can stop death. You cannot. I cannot. Modern medicine cannot. No one has that kind of power. You see, Paul's not taunting death based on his own achievement or his own skill. Paul's chasing death around, pointing to his ring finger as a spectator in the stands who is uncoordinated and blind and confined to a wheelchair. Meaning, he doesn't stand a chance against death. Death would run circles around him and take him down. Paul taunts death on the basis of the one who conquered death, Jesus. He's saying, I'm, I'm with him. Where's your victory? Notice what he says right after these questions. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it is Jesus who wins 
the victory over death. You see, death's sting is sin, and that sting goes beyond the deathbed. It goes beyond the funeral. It goes beyond the cemetery. Sin brings the sting of God's judgment forever, an eternal death. But Jesus has taken the sting of God's judgment in our place on the cross. 1 Peter 2 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. And where does sin get this kind of power? What is it that makes sin really sinful? Why is it that sin deserves God's punishment? Because it breaks God's law. The power of sin is the law. Look, sin means nothing if there's no law of God. The worst sin will do, the worst that kind of behavior will do, is mess up your human relationships. That's the worst it'll do. And that's what most people think. This is where the really heinous stuff is, is it could, it could break up a marriage, it could end a friendship, it could get me fired. But the worst of the worst, the greatest power of sin is because of the existence of the law. Because that is what we have broken. But Jesus kept God's law. He lived in perfect submission to it. He was perfect in word and in deed and in thought. Even when He goes to the cross, He is keeping the law because the law says that sin requires death. And if He is going to bear our sin in His body, then He must face the law's punishment, which is death. But on the third day, Acts 2 tells us, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is a great verse. It wasn't possible. Look, death holds so many people and keeps them, and it has a grip that you cannot break and that I cannot break, and yet Jesus broke it. It was not possible for death to hold him. It is as we sang at the beginning of the service. God raised him up in victory O'er sin and death and hell all three. Jesus wins the victory. But then Jesus gives the victory. Jesus gives the victory. Some of you may play golf. My favorite way to play golf is in a scramble because I don't have to play as well on every shot. But here's the thing. Some people will say, you know what? God is so great. God, God gives second chances. God will give you a mulligan in life. Isn't that great? God gives you a mulligan. Isn't that great? He hands you another ball. He says, try again. You can do better. That is absolutely wrong. God is not a God of mulligans. Because you know what happens? It ha it's the same thing that happens to me when I get a mulligan on the, on, on, on the golf course. I hit it just as badly the second time as I did the first time. And no matter how many mulligans you give us as humanity, we're going to keep breaking God's law. But God doesn't give us a mulligan. 
He gives us a victor who takes the shot in our place. This is what a beauty of a scramble. Four guys get on a tee. We all hit the ball. And the three of us who are losers thank the one who hit a great shot. And we go to his ball, and then we hit another one. And we three losers pick up our ball, and we thank the one who hit the good shot. This is, this is Jesus giving us the victory. Jesus hits the shot. It's not that we get another shot at it. It's that he took it for us. So he won the victory, and then he credits it to us. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. It's not earned. We don't have the strength or the strategy to beat death. We can't beat physical death, and we certainly can't beat spiritual eternal death. I mean, death would crush every one of us like bugs with its big, heavy black boot. We don't stand a chance. But Jesus wins it, and then he gives it. And notice who he gives it to. Look in verse 57. Uh, sorry, yeah, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is given to us. Well, who is us? Well, when Paul writes this letter, he's writing to a specific group of people. He's not writing to all of the citizens of Corinth. He's writing to the church in Corinth, to Christians. Now, God has preserved this letter so that we can pick it up and read it and learn from it and find spiritual truth in it, but the main audience is Christians. So when Paul says us, he means y'all Christians along with me, Christian. So you see, the only ones who are part of this us, who receive victory over sin and death, who can think of death as defeated, who can taunt death as it were, the one who laughs at the time to come, are Christians, not necessarily those who grew up in church. This is very dangerous for you little kids who are growing up in church right now. I mean, your parents make sure you are here whenever the doors are open. You're going to the classes and you're doing the things and you're going to the whatnots and all that stuff. And you sit next to them and you squirm and you squirm and you squirm and you squirm until finally you learn to sit still, but you're just not listening just as much as you were when you were squirming. Here's the real danger to think that because you grew up in church, somehow you have an advantage with God. Now, the only advantage you have is that you have been taught a lot more than a whole lot of other people. But you're not necessarily part of who Paul says is us. It's not, it's not necessarily the one who knows the Bible backward and forward and who can beat you in a theological debate over lunch. It's not necessarily the one who's a good and upright and moral guy in society does real good. It's certainly not every human being on the planet with no distinction. The only ones who are part of us, as Paul says us, are Christians. Not simply those who take the label, but those who've been given life. Those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus, trusting in his death as the only hope of forgiveness, trusting in his resurrection as the only hope of victory when death comes. 
And so I wonder, friend, are you a Christian? Not as I would define it, or as you would define it, but as the Bible would define it. Are you trusting in Jesus alone to save you? Are you facing death whenever it comes, assured of victory, or is death chasing you around, pointing to its ring finger? It is not too late, friend. Jesus said, anyone who comes to him by faith, he will not turn out. Life awaits all who come to him by faith, including you. Anyone who would come to him. Everyone who comes to him by faith. Why wouldn't you? Would you rather be chased around by death and taunted and face that eternity? Or would you rather know that Jesus has won it for you? He's hit the shot, and you get the victory. How do these questions give hope? Well, first, that they're because they're rhetorical. They're taunts of death. Secondly, because they point back to Jesus' resurrection, who conquered death. But thirdly, they give hope because the questions point forward to final restoration. You see, the Bible teaches that in the beginning, when sin entered the world, death entered the world. And we live in a world still cursed by sin, still marked by death. Death awaits, physical death awaits each of us. It will come sooner and it will come later. But no matter how far off it is, we are all facing the grave. And some people think, well, I'm so young, why why would I be thinking about this? Dear friend, let me tell you, death may look a long way off, and it may be an optical illusion. You don't know when the last day's been written for you. I don't know when the last day's been written for me. I may not preach in this pulpit ever again after today. We're all going that way. That is the direction that life goes in this world. It goes to the grave. And Paul wants us to know that death's power will not always linger, at least not for those who trust in Jesus. Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, the death of death is certain because of the resurrection of Jesus. But when... When will death be swallowed up? Don't don't you look forward to that day? Death being swallowed up? Well, it's not now. Not fully. Look at the first word in verse 54. When? When the perishable puts on the imperishable. In other words, at the end of human history, when, our body, when Christ returns and we are raised and glorified and He deals fully with evil and the whole earth is recreated in, without the curse of sin and we live in the new heavens and new earth, it is at that point that we will know when the perishable puts on the imperishable. Then the first, ver- first word in the second part of that verse, then... When? Then. 
Then death will be swallowed up. Then the taunting will really begin. Then the victory dance will really break out. Even Baptists will dance. (laughs) When that happens, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, then we'll all scream it and sing it and dance around loving it. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That will be a great day. But until then, until death is swallowed up, until death is fully dead, it wriggles around in this world and seeks to touch all that it can. At the end of World War II, after the Japanese formally surrendered in September of 1945, there were Japanese soldiers who kept fighting, who refused to surrender. Fifty of, fifty of these men kept fighting in Saipan until December of 1945. There were 30 more in various jungles until March of 1947. A couple stayed at the battle station in Iwo Jima until January 1949. And there were 20 in the Mariana Islands until June 1951. For 20 years after the Japanese surrender, there were various squads and individuals that slowly came out and slowly surrendered. And almost 30 years after surrender had happened, after victory was final, there was a college student backpacking in the Philippines, and he came across Lieutenant Hiroo Onoda. still vigilant for the cause. In fact, he had been told that people would try to deceive him and tell him that the war was over. So he had to be convinced and ordered by his commanding officer who had long since retired. And on his birthday, March 10th, 1974, he finally laid down his weapons. The war was over. But these soldiers kept fighting. And so it is with death. Death has been defeated in the resurrection of Jesus. Victory has been publicly declared. And yet death's army fights on and tries to hold ground, trying to resist. And we see it, don't we? We see it physically. We see it spiritually. We see it in various diseases and instances of violence. We see it in ideals and ways of living that corrode the soul. Ideologies that eat away and bring death. But on that day, when Jesus returns, like 52-year-old Lieutenant Onoda, 
the last weapon will be laid down. And what was broken by sin in the Garden of Eden will be restored. And we will live in a new garden, not just one great spot on the planet, but a whole new beautiful earth. And we will live in a new society with no obituary pages, no abortion clinics, no hospice care, no natural disasters, no school shootings. We will live in a new city with no hospitals and no prisons and no cemeteries. We will be a new humanity with no hate and no hostility and no sinful self-expression that denies God as creator and no sinful self-expression that denies God as lawgiver. And we will sing a new song to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And you know what? On that day, in that place, we may look around that glorious place and we may look high and we may look low and we may look under every rock that exists and you know what we won't find anywhere? Death. Then shall come to pass the saying. Death is swallowed up in victory. It'll be gone. And it'll never be part of our lives again. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. And that will be new, won't it? No more death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Can you hear the hope? Can you hear the hope in these rhetorical questions? Can you hear it as the questions point us back to Jesus' resurrection? Can you hear it as the questions point us forward to the final restoration? This is our hope. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is our only hope. Is He your hope? Let's pray. Father, we bow before you thankful for the hope of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that though death seems to win, it is only an illusion for death does not win. You have conquered death. You have conquered the grave. And for all who trust in you, Lord Jesus, we will share in your victory. When even we are tempted to despair and are reminded of our guilt, we can look to you 
who died for us and rose again. God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope. Hope in Christ. In the midst of a world that is grasping for hope but finds empty promises. Help us to cling to Christ and help us to point others around us to Christ. And I pray for those here who have found their hope in any number of places other than Jesus. Oh God, would you show them that their only hope of being made right with you, their only hope of forgiveness, their only hope of eternal life is through faith in Christ. Would you work in them by your Spirit that they might turn to you and trust in Jesus? Help us as a congregation to be a shining light of the hope of Jesus. Keep us from looking for hope in other places, in other solutions. Drive it into our hearts, Lord, that the old song is right. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there is no other. Jesus is the way. And we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.